Thank you, Roxanne. Well, welcome everyone to another in our series, Spring Into Action. This spring, we're going to be on the topic of being active in sharing our faith. I'm going to look at a whole variety of approaches to doing that, and today it is no exception. But uh, just before we, we get into that, you know, I'm hearing great stories. There are people around the church who are sharing the gospel, having fantastic spiritual conversations with people. And one of, one of those people is Roz. She's got a great story to tell. Come and tell us all about it, Roz. Thank you. Thank you. On Wednesday evenings each week, um, I go to orchestra rehearsal uh, with the Hume Orchestra. I go to uh, Gladstone Park Primary School where we rehearse. And um, the week before last, you'll remember it was very rainy. There was a lot of rain that week and there was flooding up in the north of Victoria. And I was driving to rehearsal and I saw this brilliant, vibrant rainbow. And it just struck me straight away that it reminded me of God's covenant to all of the earth that he would never flood the whole earth again. It was pretty important in a week of news reports about flooding. So when I arrived at orchestra rehearsal, I walked into the room and I said, oh, I just saw the most brilliant rainbow as I was driving here. It just reminded me of God's promise that he's never going to flood the earth again. And some of the people just ignored me. But um, there was, sitting there, there was Namala, who's, um, she's 15 years old, great violinist. Uh, she's um, from India and she's a devout Muslim. And there was Fiona our clarinetist, uh, she's a Christian. She worships and she plays piano at her Anglican church every Sunday. And those two took notice and engaged in conversation. I said, and I went on and I said, you know, it really it really annoys me that the gave movement stole the rainbow symbol for their movement, you know. It's God's symbol. <laughs> and it symbolises that, you know, it's his promise. And they stole it. That really annoys me. And Namala just broke out in an animated conversation. She said, me too. She said, I tell the kids at school, she goes to Gladstone Park Secondary, and they just laugh at me. They don't believe me. She said, the only person that agrees with me is this Christian girl. And so Fiona and I sort of entered into conversation about God's promise, and we talked a bit about that. And as we walked into the rehearsal, we were talking about... Um, the first five books of the Bible, and Namala said, um, I've been reading the Bible. And uh, I said, oh, okay. So we continued to talk about uh, the Bible, and then we did rehearsal. As soon as rehearsal was finished, Namala made a beeline for me, and she said, what version of the Bible do you read? Oh, um, NIV, uh, New International Version. I said, what are you reading? And she said, oh, it's a Gideon Bible. And I think that's the New King James. Yeah. And I said, um, how do you go with the language in that? She goes, I said, do you understand it? She says, oh, sort of. And I said, um, have you heard of the message, which is a different version? It's in today's language. She goes, no. And I said, look, um, I can loan you one. Oh, would you? Yeah, I'll bring one next week. So um, mine at home is only the New Testament and Psalms. So I borrowed one out of the church library, which is in the room back here last Sunday, which is the whole Bible done as the message. So last Wednesday, I went to rehearsal. As soon as I got there, Namala, this is for you. Oh, thank you, she said. So I went off to set up my viola 
And um, she started immediately leafing through the Bible until she found Genesis chapter 9. And she rushes over to me. She says, I found it. I found it. And she read out to me verses 17 to uh, 12 to 17. That's right, verses 12 to 17, which is the actual account of God giving his covenant to all people that he would never flood the earth again. And she read it with such delight. And I said to her, that's beautiful, isn't it? She said, yes. And she said, thank you so much for this. And I said, I hope you really hope you enjoy reading this book. So there's sort of an opening, which came quite by accident. Wonderful, Ros. That's fantastic. Yeah, give her a round of applause. That's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful story. You know, we were uh, at youth on Friday night, uh, so a couple of days ago, we were also um, having uh, a chat about um, friends at school who might not know Jesus and that sort of thing. And um, there was a few uh, moments of sharing and then praying for those people after also having a practice on sharing, doing a role play, sharing the bridge to life with one another. Um, but uh, one of the ones that uh, I, I just uh, took particular notice of was uh, David's son, Caleb. Caleb just mentioned he's got a Buddhist friend. And um, and although he's Buddhist, he's kind of, he likes to have spiritual conversations, very happy to kind of hear, you know, some Christian points of view as well. And so um, one of the things that Caleb's done is taken one of these, Jesus and Buddhist philosophy, and this little John's Gospel, uh, the short biography about Jesus' life, titled Living Water. The two of these together in this track, because the tract I've written couples with the, um, the John's Gospel, and it basically says that, hey, look, there's a lot of commonality between Buddhism and the teachings of Jesus. But what it ultimately says is um, that uh, although Siddhartha Gautama, the founder of Buddhism, says that, hey, I'm a fellow traveller on the path toward enlightenment, then I go to Jesus saying, but Jesus actually said, I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the way to enlightenment. And it and the kind of it, it gets to the end and encourages the person, well, explore the life of Jesus yourself. Perhaps you will find enlightenment reading his life. So that's something that uh, Caleb's going to, uh, let's pray for Caleb. He gets an opportunity to share that with his friend. Well, friends, uh, today it's uh, part five in the series, and this one is titled Telling Your Story. Telling your story. And here we're going to look at one of the Apostle Paul's approaches. Now, of course, we know the Apostle Paul is someone who uh, was an astute theologian. Uh, many would argue that the most uh, comprehensive theological work in a single book in the Bible is the book of Romans. Um, and uh, certainly Paul very carefully outlines Christian theology within that book. But Paul also, although he did sometimes use a more academic approach to sharing the gospel, he also simply shared his story. How did he come to believe in Jesus? And uh, we often use the term testimony, but it comes from the passage we're looking at today because Paul is telling his story, but he's testifying in a court of law. Uh, it's very jargony, actually, testimony. If you're talking with an unchurched person, I wouldn't call it that. I'd call it... Uh, your faith story or something like that, something, uh, a more simple term, a more accessible term. I remember when I was a new believer and heard words like testimony, immediately that's what I thought of. I also heard the word conviction. Oh, I feel really convicted about that. Yeah, what on earth are they talking about, you know? We mean convicted by sin, but actually the secular word for that would be guilty. I feel guilty about that, you know? It's, um, so we just got to think about jargon whenever we're trying to talk with unchurched people about Jesus, try and uh, clear up some of our garden and talk in 
slightly more regular language as the message version of the Bible does, for instance, as Rosh means. Well, let's uh, have a look at the context of this passage. Acts 25, 23. Have a look at this. It says, The next day Agrippa Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city at the command of Festus. All was brought in. I want you to try and picture this. Um, Agrippa is a king. He's going to be wearing the robes of royalty, probably a gold circlet crown. Um, he would have had probably a scarlet robe on as well, or, or a, a trimming of scarlet because it was, it was worn as the governor on state occasions. Um, now, in contrast, Paul, he's going to be wearing a plain prisoner's gown, probably chains like handcuffs. Um, and uh, according to church history tradition, John Stott says that um, Paul was a little fellow, balding by this time, big bushy beetle eyebrows, a hook nose and bandy legs. So probably not a very impressive looking character, especially next to the king. Um, and yet in this account, we see it's clearly Paul that dominates what is going on in that courtroom. Uh, have a look at Acts 26 here. First few verses. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have my permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I do find it interesting that he says to, says to the king, I consider it fortunate that I'm presenting to you today, knowing the history of, the, of that family, go back to great-granddad, that's uh, Herod the Great, he killed, he tried to have killed the infant Jesus. And then his son, Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, he beheaded John the Baptist. And then um, the grandson, uh, Herod Agrippa, he had James executed, the disciple James, as recorded in Acts chapter 12. And so here now we've got the great grandson also called Agrippa. Is he really fortunate to be presenting to this guy today? Um, there's a part of me thinks, surely not. Isn't he just being polite? But actually, you look at the conversation, and Paul says at one moment, I know you read the prophets, King Agrippa. And it sounds to me like Paul thinks he's not far from the kingdom of God. So I actually think he is. Being honest, I think he thinks this guy will have an open mind to what I'm sharing. Well, we've got some, we're looking at three big ideas within the way Paul presents his story. Number one. Paul's life before he became a Christian. Paul's life before he became a Christian. Let's read about it. Acts 26, 9. It says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. What in there? What was he doing? First of all, he's travelling around 
trying to find believers in Jesus and he's putting them in prison. Uh, when it says, I cast my vote against them, it was there was a measure of democracy. They would vote, is this false person, you know, this person who's caught up in this ridiculous prophet Jesus, you know, um, should we have them executed? Well, Paul would always vote, yes, execute them. He would cast his vote against them. And many of them were executed. Um, and also he would punish them, trying to make them blaspheme. You know, uh, torch them, make them blaspheme. Um, you think of this guy, and of course he was so obsessed, he went, to, he went beyond Jerusalem, he went beyond Israel. He travelled to foreign cities to try and persecute them. When you think of God's kingdom, Apostle Paul, or Saul as he was called then, is about as bad as you can possibly get. He's basically a murderer and a persecutor of the key people of the Christian church. Key people of the church. Don't get worse than that. And yet he discovers faith in Jesus. And it's a reminder to us, no matter what you sin. I remember saying one, one week at church, um, this was in uh, Crossway South actually, I was just going through, I might have been in Ten Commandments, and I just said, I realise there's probably no murderers here today. Found out after the service there was. One guy, he'd served his time in prison, and yes, he had murdered someone. But he was now a believer. And you see, the thing is, no matter what our past, Jesus offers grace. He's willing to forgive even Saul. Let me tell you a little bit about my story. Because in the journey of this, what I'm hoping you can do is get better at telling your story. Here's a little bit about me. Before I became a Christian, so I, before I became a Christian, let me say a little bit about it. You've heard me say before that um, I didn't grow up in a church-going family. My parents didn't do church. Uh, they weren't anti-Christian, but they just didn't see the relevance of it. And they didn't even go to church at Easter and Christmas. So no kind of churchy heritage at all. And to give you a little bit of an insight into where I was at spiritually at 19, I can remember having a long debate with a girl at a party. She was a believer, and a believer in God at least, and she was talking about how she was confident, you know, God was the creator of the universe and so on. And I'm very much arguing, how on earth can you know that you don't have enough evidence? And uh, through, for me, through lack of experience and through lack of evidence, I did not believe. And so for about an hour we debated about this, a friendly debate, but clearly you can see where I was at when I was 19. I was an agnostic. I did not believe in God. Um, and uh, for me, you've also heard me mention that, uh, you know, my, my thing, I was trying to make it in the music industry. And um, so and we were, I had a regular job, but we were pretty serious. We had our down-down studios uh, where we rehearsed. We um, had lots of expensive gear. And uh, we were caught up in the pub scene, the nightclubs and playing around and all that sort of thing. But there's a whole culture that goes with that. There's the, that, that party culture where there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of booze, there's a lot of sleeping around. And all of that was part of the scene that I was into. And uh, just to talk with me, uh, I swore like a trooper. I mean, every sentence had a swear word in it. Constantly swearing. I could clean my language up if I thought it's going to be highly offensive to someone, but that was my standard language. I did not look at all like someone would ever come to believe. Number two, how Paul became a Christian. How Paul became a Christian. His second part of his story, Acts 26 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my commandments. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, 
Saul. Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. There's a lot in that. Firstly, about noon. This is interesting because the Jewish culture was such, that's about the time they would have a siesta. It all happens around the world. Portugal, Spain, Latin America. When I was in Latin America, um, they, had, they had a siesta around you know, lunchtime. They just all like have naps and take it easy. Um, this was the culture at that time. The fact that Paul is soldiering on at 12 noon in the peak of the heat means it speaks of a word he used, his obsession to persecute the Christians. Um, it mentions something interesting here that when ultimately the divine Son of God speaks to him, it's not in the holy language of Hebrew, it's in the common tongue Aramaic. I'm sure looking back, Paul would shocked about this. <laughs> Um, it's interesting that Jesus says, why do you persecute me? There's no indication that Paul ever met Jesus. But he says, why, did you, why are you persecuting me? It's clear that when a Christian is persecuted, a believer in Jesus, Jesus takes that very personally. He considers it as if he is being persecuted. Challenges us being nasty to a fellow Christian. Jesus takes that personally. Finally, he says this unusual phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, um, when training horses, um, the Romans, uh, and actually the Jewish people I understand as well, um, would use these little spikes in the ground, uh, which were goads, and they would teach the horse, often blindfolding the horse, to respond to the reins, whether on a chariot or whether someone riding it, rather than just going their own way. And if they deviated, they'd get a sharp spike just above the hoof, which hurt. And so it was a way of training horses. I think what Jesus indicates here is Paul, obviously, despite his zeal, despite the fact he's certain he's doing God's work, things are going very wrong. He's kicking against the goad, so to speak. He, there's stuff going wrong, there's pain in his life, and it's like Jesus is saying, it's, I've been trying to get your attention. I think I have it now, you know, finally. Ah, oh, goodness. Um, Paul got a vision, didn't he? A vision of Jesus. And some of you might be thinking to yourself, hey, but, um, but Lee, I thought you were trying to make this sharing a story thing relevant. How is that relevant? I mean, people don't get visions of Jesus today, mate. Well, actually, no, they do. They do, far more often than you'd realise. Um, I was uh, at um, just a shopping centre recently and saw uh, a lady, it was a Muslim lady, wearing a full burqa, just with the little slit across her eyes. Um, let me tell you a story about a Muslim lady. Uh, it's actually taken from Eternity magazine, Saved by a Smile. It's, it's well, um, this, this lady, Muslim lady, we'll call her Yasmin, was living in a, you know apartment block. And um, she had a couple of little kids. Husband worked long hours. She's quite lonely. And a lot, I realise, a lot of people who are not used to that sort of background, they find it hard to connect with people wearing a burqa. They're almost a bit intimidated or, you know, uncomfortable around them. For ants, you're not allowed to wear them. Um, this lady would always, this Christian lady, would always smile at Yasmin and kind of, you know, try and create a conversation. She was just friendly. Yasmin noticed us. Well, one day, her 
little boy, very young little boy, got away from Yasmin. She lost him. And the Christian lady saw him like he was in a corner, like crying. He's very upset. So she just sat with him for a while, you know, waited till mum. Yasmin finds him. She was so touched. She said, oh, please, can you come, come to my apartment? Have tea together. And thanked her so much for looking out for her little boy. Well, the, the Christian lady had already asked some members of her church, be praying for this Muslim lady. Be praying for her. I'm hoping for an opportunity to talk with her about Jesus. Well, that time came. They had that cup of tea and right there from that day one, she just said, do you mind if I share some stories with you about Jesus? The Muslims deeply respect Jesus. He's one of their main prophets. She was very happy. She shared many of his stories. You know, whether it's feeding the 5,000, they believe in miracles, whether it's healing the sick, you know, whether it's driving out demons, whether it's some of his teaching and the crowds and all that. She loved the stories. Well, one day the Christian lady challenges Yasmin and says, you think Jesus is actually more than a prophet? We Christians believe he's the divine son of God. Yasmin was very... Well, the Christian lady continued to pray. Let me read what happened. One night, this is direct from the article, one night whilst asleep, Yasmin received a vision. A vision of Jesus radiating God's love. She felt overwhelmed by his love, attracted to his love. Powerful vision. Next day, as soon as her husband left for work, she made a beeline to meet with that Christian lady. She told her all about the vision. The Christian lady shared the gospel, led her in prayer, and she gave her heart to Christ. Yes, Jesus, these, these passages, whenever you read the New Testament, never think all those miracles and things, they were just for back then. No, they still happen today, and they happen at a far more profuse rate than I think we realise. I shared that story a while back in my last church. The day I shared it, there was a Muslim lady, in a Muslim background lady, an Iranian lady, in my church for the first time. She came to me after service and she said, oh, that is so similar to what happened to me. One night I knew I'd locked all the doors, I'd locked all the windows. I woke up in the night and there was a man standing in my bedroom, big beard, long hair, and he was holding my hand. And then he spoke to me. I didn't see his mouth move, but he spoke into my mind. It was Jesus. And she said the vision went on for 10 minutes. Amongst Iranians, I've heard that story, I reckon, 20 different times. 20 different Iranian people have told me that type of story. Jesus. Iranian background Muslims are very overpriced, by the way. <sighs> that lady's name was Nahid, the one I just told the story about. Let me move on to Acts 26.15. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, get up. Stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you find that Paul's commission interesting? That he's there 
to turn people from the power of Satan to God, turn people from dark to light. You know, that's our mission too. And this is one of the realities, friends. People who don't believe, although they are unaware of it, they're actually under the power and deception of Satan. And it does take prayer. It does take spiritual warfare to lift that veil. And that will be the case with your friends. For that Muslim lady I told you the story about, Yasmin, people at the church were praying. She received that vision in partnership with people's prayers, God answering prayers that that veil might be removed and she might see the truth. Let me relate it back to my story. Part B, how did I become a Christian? I can still distinctly remember the night. Our band Impact had um, played at the top nightclub in the city, the number one nightclub for bands. We had a fantastic night. Big light show, big sound system, screaming guitar solos, and Chris, our lead vocalist, was a fantastic front man. We had won the crowd over. They loved us. I walked off stage, and I remember thinking I should be absolutely buzzing. I felt kind of like there was something missing. The Nicky Gumbel stuff, of course, Alpha would say, is there more to life than this, is their classic story. That was kind of the feeling. I, I probably, in my mind, was wording it more, is there more to the bricks and more to the technology and music of my world than what I'm experiencing? And I went out under the stars looking up at the universe and said something like this. God, I don't know if you're real or not, but if you are real, would you reveal yourself to me? Help me know that you're real. And I meant it. Sincere prayer. I don't know if you've ever heard the testimony of Amy uh, McPherson. She's a great evangelist in the 1920s and 30s. Exactly word, the word she prayed when she got saved. Identical words. Um, well, God did start to reach out. Um, and I can remember a few distinct things. By chance, actually, by God's providence, I remember flicking on the radio one night. It was a, a, actually a, just a secular station. I used to, used to listen to a lot of music on it. They had this show on there, Insight for Living, Chuck Swindle preaching. I caught a message and thought, that show was really interesting. Caught another one. Caught it was on four nights a week. And um, that started to get me thinking because this guy kept quoting from the Bible. And I thought, mate... I remember, speaking of Gideon's Bibles, that's um, Ros's story, about the Muslim girl, I was given a little red Gideon's Bible year seven high school. Um, everyone was. All the year seven students. A Christian group came out, did some really cool, funky stuff, and they gave out a bunch of Gideon's Bibles. I still had it. Never read it, but I had it. Um, like Ross said, it was in New King James English. That was hard going. A lot of it I didn't understand. <laughs> a scripture would jump off the page and is God saying that to me? Well, one of the things that I heard this preacher talk about was fellowship. I never used the word fellowship, but he explained it's about hanging out with Christians. And so I remember doing this. Now, you can see I'm not from a Christian heritage. I thought this is how you pray. Uh, the Muslims would actually be very happy with this. Uh, so I did something like this. I got down and I said, God, I've heard 
a message about fellowship Christians, spending time with Christians. I don't know any Christians. Would you help me meet a Christian? So um, I prayed that prayer a couple of times. Second time I prayed it, as I'm praying down on my apartment floor, the phone rings. It was, uh, I, it was for a position. I hadn't even applied for it. I had a chat, went to the interview, got the position. But that was actually an answer to prayer. Mark Williams, in the workplace, he started having spiritual conversations with me. He had about 30. And uh, eventually that got me along to his small group Bible study. A whole bunch of young adults, there were about 15 of them in a circle. That particular one, Pastor Kim Valentine used to lead it. And uh, he could say I had an awful lot of questions. And so he said, why don't you come and meet with me at my office next week? Made a time, did that. We caught up about four times and I came to that full understanding that Jesus Christ really is the almighty son of God. Um, I understood what he achieved on the cross by dying for the sins of humanity and I was willing not to just embrace him as saviour, but I'm willing to embrace him as the one I would follow, the one I would endeavour to serve, the one who I would try and live out his teachings. Let's have a look at the third part of Paul's story. Paul's life after he became a Christian. Acts 26, 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first for those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and on all Judea, and to all the Galileans, all the Gentiles also, sorry. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God help to this very day, and so I stand here to testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer as the first arise from the dead and will proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So Paul has had a massive turnaround. So now, rather than persecuting the church, trying to imprison believers, Instead, he's spreading that gospel message, not just here and there, but right throughout the Roman Empire. And not only that, he's planting churches all over the world. He's praying for the sick in Jesus' name. Massive contrast. Let me bring it to the third stage of my story. Part C, how my life changed after becoming a Christian. Just be thinking of your own story as we go through this. I can remember three distinct changes. One of the things that I was very into was guitar playing. So, um, and you had to be very good at it because of the sort of bands that we were doing covers of were Van Halen and um, Bon Jovi, bands with significantly cool guitar playing in them, but also very hard to learn the licks. And so I, including gigs and band practice and personal time, I played guitar about three to four hours every day. So, and I loved it, loved that was not a discipline, just that was fun. I loved playing the guitar. I remember the switch. I started enjoying reading the Bible and praying more than I did playing the guitar. Another one, gigs. I love the gigs. Um, 
I was having a jam the other night with a, with a, with a band and uh, the drummer said, no, I'm happy to, to sit here. I'm a shy, retiring type. I like to be in the background. And I said, yeah, no, I'm not really. I like to be front of stage. <laughs> and um, I love the gigs. Love getting up on the stage, playing licks and, uh, you know, co-singing with uh, the lead vocalist and uh, crazy stuff like playing guitar with my teeth. And, you know, we were very flamboyant. We had our own image and stuff. We loved all that, the big lights, the smoke machines, big sound. You know what? I started enjoying church more than I did the gigs. I liked coming along and listening to the preacher, Pastor Kim, and I liked um, singing songs of praise to the Almighty God. That was more exciting than gigs. The third transformation. I did like the party scene, there's no doubt about it. You know, this whole kind of you know, band scene that there was, the culture of all that, it was heaps of fun. Love the parties. You know what? I could see I was enjoying Christian fellowship more than the party. So hanging out after church, talking to church. I, I went to, there was lunch every Sunday. Always lots of time for fellowship. And um, I just enjoyed this young adults group on a Friday night. We talk heaps. It was just great hanging out with Christians. Three transformations. You've heard me use the word metamorphosis, born again. That's what was going on. For me, I went to um, one of the transformations was Sunday, was just devoted to God. Three services a day, Sunday morning and um, lunch, then Sunday afternoon service, that was, so that was the one church, and then Sunday evenings I'd go visit another church. You know, there was three or four that I particularly visited regularly. Uh, discipleship, I was being discipled. The pastor took me and a couple of other blokes under his wing. The pastor would meet with me uh, once a fortnight, one-on-one, and the other fortnight he'd be with all three of us together. He did the same with the other guys. We'd have lunch that time. Um, evangelism. Started doing a whole bunch of different evangelism. One, I remember distinctly started going door-to-door with this young guy, Tim Dover, both of us sharing the gospel, door-to-door. Days in prayer. I'd try and get away about once a month. We used to knock off work every second week about 12 noon. And um, that particular one, um, about... Every second one of those, so once a month, I'd drive my car out to the forest, um, spend that day, all day Saturday, uh, in prayer in the Word of God. Wouldn't eat, just drink from the stream. In the middle of nowhere, didn't see anyone. Fantastic. Get along with God. And Sunday morning, drive back home, have a shower, come to church. Um, another change was church asked me to lead worship. And then they took a huge risk. They asked me to preach. So the pastor, so I'd been saved for six months. The pastor heard me share my testimony. That was it. And he said, you know, Lee, I think you've got to preach. How do you, how do you think about uh, preaching in a month's time? Free topic, whatever's on your heart. And, um, yeah, no, I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll have a crack. <laughs> and um, still remember that day, standing up at the pulpit, my hands were same when I gave my testimony. They absolutely shake. I'm having to hold the pulpit, you know. <laughs> so nervous. But um, she had the word of God that Sunday, and from there on, the pastor said, I'm going to put you on a roster. I'm going to preach regularly. Well, let's develop that gift. My life had changed dramatically. Developing your story as an evangelist. That's my hope today. That's another approach. Simply sharing your story. Three things. Developing your story as an evangelistic tool. One, before you became a Christian. Two, 
how you became a Christian, three, after you became a Christian. And uh, I share that today knowing that there will be some that you've kind of knew Jesus really quite deeply when you were young, and you always have. So that, that pattern won't quite work for you, I realise that. But there'll be aspects of what I've talked about today, encounters with God, those portions of your story will be relevant. And you heard how I shared my story today. I broke it up into three parts. You don't necessarily have to share every part of your story. In your conversation, you might share just one of those thirds in a conversation. Other times, you might get the opportunity to share the whole lot. But for me and that guy at work, Mark Williams, he would share portions of his story here and there, little moments, you know, and it built up over many conversations to the point where the word of God was going into my height. The seed of God's word was starting to grow, take root, and flourish to the point where I came to believe Jesus truly is the almighty son of God and the way of salvation. Well, I'm going to pray for you. Like Roz, Roz's example today, let's be in prayer that God would open opportunities. You know, Sue was just telling me the other day that she feels there is an anointing over the series. Leading into Easter last year, I did a single message on salvation. And the idea was we've got an outreach coming up. And Sue was saying that her friends really opened up to Christ around that time. They almost came to the production. But then they closed up again. As we've started this series, she's noticed they opened up again. God is willing to go before you. God is wanting to bring people into his kingdom. But we do, as I mentioned last week, although he's calling people, it's up to us to share spiritual truths with them. You cannot believe without hearing the truth. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word about Christ. Well, as the worship team returns, let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks, Lord, that you've given us so many fantastic examples in the Bible. The New Testament has just an abundance, an abundance of ways that people went about sharing the truths of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus. I pray today that as we journey through this series, that each of us might be more equipped, that each of us might be more willing, each of us might be more motivated as we journey through this with a sense of expectation that there are friends in my world, whether in my workplace, whether at my school, whether people I play sport with, or people who are neighbours, people who are relatives, there will be some in everyone's community that is open to Christ. I'm confident of that. So, Father, would you help us, help us reach out? I'm sure people would have thought I was completely close to Jesus. And yet, Mark, one guy, saw through that. Father, I pray that each one, each of us, you will equip us, use us to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, and for his glory, amen. <laughs>